Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Elisa Ma wrote about the restoration of Rainer Werner Fassbender's second longest TV series, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day, which she describes as, quote, perhaps Fassbender's most humanist, even approaching feel-good work, end quote. The restoration premiered at the Berlin Film Festival this year and will be released on DVD from Arrow Films on July 24th. For this episode, I was joined by Elisa Ma, head of programming at Metrograph, and Nick Pinkerton, film critic at large, to tackle this important, fascinating, and funny work. Here's our conversation. Rainer Werner Fassbender's Eight Hours Don't Make a Day, a TV series produced for WDR in Germany. It was mostly shot in Cologne because it's almost eight hours long itself. It features a whole cast of uh, regular Fassbender players. It's just really marvelous work that it's like, I can I can only say that it's just like a real joy to watch it because it's just so funny and very poignant. Eliza wrote a feature about it in the new issue. Maybe you could say more. I was really struck by the optimism that was cast over every episode. Mm-hmm. And um, after I watched the, the series at Berlin, I learned that there were three additional episodes planned in addition to what had aired, the five episodes that make up the almost eight hours that you're talking about. But unfortunately, because of various intervening factors, they just never were even put into production. And according to Julianne Lorenz, who's the head of the Fassbender Foundation, those those episodes were just going to be a little more negative. Mm-hmm. Um, more concrete is the phrase that Fassbender used. Right. Uh, um, but, was... she, but she used the word pessimistic. Mm. But as it stands, it's it's really one of the funniest, mm-hmm. uh, warm, humanist, almost redemptive yeah. <laughs> uh, tales about a family that I've ever seen of his work. As the opening credits show you, this is Eine Familienserie, which mm-hmm. means a family series. And uh, it's basically the television company, correct me if I'm wrong, wanted him to sort of take a bourgeois form, which was the family series, and then inject these really kind of radical left-wing politics into it. Did you guys laugh when you saw the opening credits yes. come on? Because we're trained to see such mean things precede all Fassbender films in giant block letters that you just assume that it's ironic. Everyone that was in the audience burst out laughing when that came on. It opens with a child being cracked across the face. Yes. So that, I mean, to say that... Oma's birthday party. Yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) it's very far from an episode of Home Improvement or anything like that. Given the fact that we're among the few people who are native English speakers <laughs> who have seen the thing at this point, maybe we should yeah, give sorry, a, little, a little rundown. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the center of the film is this family unit, particularly uh, a factory worker, machine tool factory worker, Jochen, uh, played by Gottfried John, who will be immediately recognizable to any occasional Fassbender viewer as the slender brown-haired fellow with the enormous pickle nose. Um, the villain in Berlin Alexander Plotz. Yes, the villain in Berlin Alexander Plotz. And he's sort of, I think he's one of sort of the dual protagonist 
himself and also uh, his grandmother, who is played by an actress called Louise Ulrich, who's in Max Ophel's Liebelei and mm-hmm. had a very long career. And the series opens at uh, Grandma's 60th birthday party, I believe mm-hmm. it is, with yeah. the entire collected family around, including uh, Kurt Robb as Jochen's uh, brother-in-law, who delivers the aforementioned slap. And from here we proceed to watch, first of all, Jochen's blossoming romance with Marion, who's played by Fassbender regular Hannah Shagula, who he meets cute with at an automat when he goes to buy some extra sparkling wine for the party. We see uh, Grandma Louise Ulrich uh, embark on a new relationship of her own with uh, a sort of dotty old fellow called Gregor, played by Werner Fink. I love Gregor. Yeah, I love... Okay, yes. (laughs) And then additionally, outside of goings-on in the sort of wider family unit, including Jochen's father and mother uh, and his sister, who is has the misfortune of being married to Kurt Robb, mm-hmm. who is a bundle of bourgeois misery, frowning expressively as only Kurt Robb can. Mm-hmm. But we also follow Jochen into his workspace and we see him gradually emerging as a leader at this machine tools factory and organizing his co-workers to bargain collectively with the bosses and slowly but surely start to win themselves these incremental uh, advantages with the management who is it Uli Lomel who plays the yes. the like CEO or the boss of bosses who is like the most in typical Fassbenderian fashion He's just like the most chill boss of all time. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, think... it's like the, I, I thought of immediately of the cops in Ali Fear Eats the Soul who are like coolest cops in yeah. all of cinema. Just yeah. a couple of hippies who show up and like, God, your neighbors are complete pricks, but we, <laughs> we have to show up here. No, uh, no cardboard villains to be found. Within the larger space of the Fassbender filmography, it is definitely as close to a feel-good work as you're going to find. Again, because it is incomplete, thus sort of saving at least a few of the characters from the guillotine. But (laughs) as it stands now, with five out of the eight scripted episodes completed, it ends on a scene of actual conjugal bliss. Mm -hmm. And you can find a lot of things in Fassbender, more things than you can find on Heaven and Earth, but you cannot find a lot of mutually satisfying non-transactional relationships between men and women men and men men women and women Mm -hmm. uh that is like recreational fun sex does not really exist in Fassbender or it's immediately preceded by like a fall or something horrific Um, pride comes before a fall as we know the villains I think they're very apparent who they are. Kurt Robb is probably, you could count him as one because as you said, when he has a birthday party, which is like totally silent, totally joyless, ends at 7.30 on the dot because people are probably going to go to bed soon. He's talking with his equally bland friends about how, you know, children should really be raised strictly and this whole like free kids movement, like they really should be belted as frequently as possible. So he's one. And then there's also a fella at the... At Jochen's uh, workplace. At the factory. The foreman? Not the foreman. No, there's one of the workers. The blonde guy. Yeah. Who's just always like, 
what are you doing? Why why are you trying to push for all these rights? Oh, yeah. You're gonna we you're gonna get us fired. Like clearly this is not gonna work. It's within and every single time an issue is broached, yes. he is always but always the like stick in the mud. He's the nay out of the <laughs> sea of yays. Yeah. Always. And then there's uh Jochen's on she's also like very priggish, you know, horrified by her mother's enjoying life everything about her is very again you know these very stiff status quo values and they're not paper villains you see where they come from but they're very clearly villains well i i mean i would i would not use that terminology exactly and you you should mention also erm herman as uh marion's co-worker she works but she uh, gets converted she gets converted yeah marion the hanashagula character works taking personal ads at a local newspaper and she has a priss-mouthed, tart, and rather nasty co-worker played mm-hmm. by Erm Herman. And additionally, even though, you know, what we have of the series is, you know, ultimately mutilated, we do at least see some glimpses of decency, I think, from mm-hmm. everyone. I mean, yeah. even the aforementioned aunt, and I don't remember the actress's name, she is instrumental in managing to procure a divorce <laughs> from the Kurt Robb character for Joachim's sister. Mm-hmm. Like, certainly not everybody is treated to the uh, same level of almost adoration that the grandma character is. Mm-hmm. But there are at least moments when we see other facets of i mean even the little sawed off blonde prick at the <laughs> at the machine tools factory he always like digs his heels in but when he gets outvoted he's like okay whatever <laughs> <laughs> i go with the majority and it's like that's exactly your fucking problem dude but anyway the yeah. children are really the true angels of yes of the entire show they are treated with the utmost respect Mm-hmm. by everybody except for the the people that we just talked about mm-hmm. and they sit down with Jochen and the grown-ups you know to talk about the grown-ups problems with them mm-hmm. and they're just sort of these sage-like little characters that are there to save everybody it seems yeah and the grandmother when she's out with Gregor grandmother who's always referred to as oma which is german for grandmother like nobody uses her actual first name even gregor uh, her boyfriend gregor and oma are sort of out looking for an apartment and they try all these different scams where it's like oh well let's talk let's spread rumors about how the apartment that we actually want to rent is filthy and they they just try and scam all these real estate agents and of course the real estate agents have seen it a million times And then they happen across this library that's being vacated. And they're like, well, why don't we just start a kindergarten? And they completely just go in for it. And, you know, Jochen's friends from the factory all pitch in to help and turn this like rundown vacated library into like a wonderful space for these neighborhood kids. And it's again, it's like this utter wonderful utopia where at one point, Oma, she's like, yeah, I don't really have a permit to do this. And Jochen's like, yeah, we know. It's fine. We want to do this anyway. And she's like, you would help even though this is like clearly illegal. And he's like, yeah, of course. It's so sweet. <laughs> and th- this is the character of Grandma throughout who is, yes. I think, really venerated by Fossbender is from the get-go, we see her in the business of identifying problems, mm-hmm. then 
creating practical solutions for those problems and putting the shoulder to the wheel. Mm-hmm. I think it's in the uh, in the first episode when she first meets Gregor. He's in the park reading D.H. Lawrence, and she makes some... Lady of, Shadow, we slumber. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's like cruising. <laughs> but anyway. And she makes some sort of saucy comment, and uh, a park park ranger or security mm-hmm. guard of some type speaks sharply to a child about getting off the grass. Well, it's a whole group of kids who want to play yeah. soccer, yeah. And immediately, Grandma, who is... You know, we always see her thinking on her feet. Mm-hmm. She's a great sort of foxy little hustler. <laughs> immediately comes up off the top of her head with this, you know, whole song and dance that puts this fellow right in his place, makes him believe, I think, that he's at risk of losing his job. Yes. And she gets the soccer field. In the case of this this renegade kindergarten, they're out in some suburban neighborhood mm-hmm. uh sees children playing in the streets one of whom is very nearly hit by a car mm-hmm. says all right well we have to get these kids off the street we also have to get an apartment and again it's and this runs throughout the same throughout the entire series and this is sort of the thing that bonds yokin and grandma is they're both great sort of pragmatic problem solvers Mm -hmm. and also their naive curiosity and and which allows them to see the the problems that exist and the possibility of solving them despite the fact that the problems have persisted because that there's always been a way to do something yes exactly yes but also neither of them are ideagogues in the slightest no like it's it's very everything that you see in the series and this, I mean, really runs throughout Fossbender. Like, it's very concerned with concrete, okay, this is an issue. What then can be done about it? And it presents this episode by episode. And uh, there is perhaps a degree of naivete to it, but it's also very throughout aware of the difficulties Mm -hmm. of life let's say yeah but acutely aware acutely aware yes but yeah this is i mean really the the sort of gears that move the entire thing episode to episode is this is an issue that we're dealing with you know in the final episode the factory is moving far you know to the other side of cologne Mm -hmm. and it's going to add an enormous amount of time to our commute and we're going to have to look for new apartments if we don't want to deal with that how are we going to be recompensated for this? And this is you know this is the spur to the action throughout. Yeah, it sort of dismisses the idea that poor people deserve to be poor because they make poor decisions. Like this is all about empowerment, and it's not some sort of like we won the lottery. It's this incremental progress and pushing and seeing how far you can push things ahead. It's like a very beautiful interesting thing to watch and that makes it more compelling to watch too yeah. because you're watching them progress episode by episode you know the these narrative threads are advancing and and you're seeing how the heroes of each episode eventually come to realize these goals but and uh, at no point do you have a sense of okay this is a long march toward like the end of history and a proletariat right. paradise exactly yeah, it's yeah. no Let's see what we're working with here and how can we arrange things in a way that makes a bit more sense and is advantageous for everyone. And I wonder, 
I, I know that in the UK, Aero Films is putting out the series on uh, home video. Mm-hmm. And I imagine the same is in the offing here in these United States. The Museum of Modern Art was involved with the restoration, as were they with uh, Fassbender's World on a Wire. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if at any point we will see an English language text of those three other episodes. Yeah. And yeah. see where things were meant to go as opposed to where they do. Right. Now it would be interesting to sort of talk about this in relation to other films that he did for television. Specifically, World on a Wire really does achieve that world-bending, mind-bending, giant leap. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I get- the production design definitely reminded me a lot of World on a Wire. Yeah. Like the factory, the the CEO, so to speak, it has an office that looks like it's a re... It's a set that gets re- reused mm-hmm. almost for, for World on a Wire. Mm-hmm. It's just this like velvet covered, you know, like m- sort of mid-century-ish. Uh, space age yeah, bachelor space pad. Age, yeah. yeah. Googie. Yeah. It is very that is also like way h- more huge than it needs to be. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I was interested in sort of figuring out because as somebody who's been a bit of a a Fassbender stan for a long time I of course you know saw none of this on television we get it on you know in dribs and drabs whatever comes out on home video whatever happens to be restored Mm -hmm. so I didn't really have a sense of what were the tv films and what were the theatrical films like some I knew Mm -hmm. like fear of fear and I only want you to love me Mm -hmm. and it seems like even if one didn't know, one kind of knew what the TV films were because they were sort of not held in quite the same regard, I think. Which is stupid. Which is stupid. And I think that that has changed in the case of Martha and Fear of Fear and I Only Want You to Love Me. Like these are generally, I think, have joined the pantheon of toppermost of the poppermost Fossbender. Is there a distinction to be made between the films that were made with television money versus the films that were made to be broadcast on TV? Well, I was just looking at what was made with TV money and what broadcast first on TV. And in some cases, there were films like Merchant of Four Seasons, which was made almost contemporaneously to Eight Hours Don't Make a Day, which was like a day and date release avant la lettre, mm-hmm. uh, which had a like a single screening at, I think, 10.30 p.m. and then opened theatrically the next day. Then you have other cases where films played on television only and might have had some sort of festival life outside of Germany. Um, So there's 15 works total that I could identify as having TV money behind them. And of them, there are several of them are films based on theater texts, uh, Das Coffeehouse, Pioneers in Ingolstadt, Jailbait, Nora Helmer, which is based on Ibsen's The Doll's House, Mm -hmm. and Women in New York. And then there are, I mean, several of the others are based on literary texts. Right. But otherwise, we have Nikola Halsen, Journey, Rio Dust Mort, Eight Hours or Not a Day, World on a Wire, Martha, Like a Bird on a Wire, which is a 44-minute variety special, Mm -hmm. uh, hilariously described, let me see, uh, in the MoMA catalog from their retrospective as a pseudo-variety show about the time of the German economic miracle. <laughs> Songs are sung and Bridget Mira tells a few jokes. Um, <laughs> that's exactly what I want from any movie. everything I want. 
Uh, then Fear of Fear, I Only Want You to Love Me, Station Master's Wife, mm-hmm. and Berlin Alexander Plots. Right. Because Eight Hours Don't Make a Day is the second longest TV excursion. It would be great to talk about Berlin Alexander Plots just because it's great to talk about. But especially in terms of like this distinction between the TV work versus the film work and really looking at the way, you know, the camera's being used, the way that the action is being blocked. It was like he was shooting for film. Like, I don't feel like there's a palpable difference of, you know, like when I watched this, I watched this on a screener link that was very generously provided by Arrow Films. And I mean, I saw this in a, in a form that was probably better than anybody in Germany saw it. Well, when I it was originally aired, and so... I, I think these these works were made at a really fortuitous time in Germany. Mm-hmm. The government was sort of giving money to incentivize uh, these television networks to create works that would, would paint a new image of Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> And so the the people who benefited from that, Fassbender was probably the one who really benefited the most, but there was also Vim Vendors mm-hmm. and Herzog. Who did an who enormous wrote. amount of TV work later on. Yeah. yeah. Even uh, that now hack, Werner Herzog. Yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized coming into this that I knew next to nothing about television public television in west germany Mm -hmm. uh during the period so i mean in as much as i was able to figure it out you have a consortium that was grouped together as the ard Mm -hmm. put together in 1950 and then you had all of these different regional broadcasters the one with whom fassbender worked most frequently the westdeutsch rundfunk koln in Cologne, and it's they who underwrote Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. Which I have been referring to as WDR because it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And there's a producer there called Peter Martzheimer, who became one of his most uh, sympathetic collaborators, mm-hmm. who went on to produce The Marriage of Maria Braun, Veronica Voss, and Lola, and of course Berlin Alexander Platz. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it looks like, from what I could gather, that he sort of hopped around a lot between... There's Zweitdeutsch Fanzerhen in Mons, Telefilm Saar in Saarbrücken, Neutdeutsche uh, Rundfunk in Hamburg. He was able to sort of catch his catch can and move mm-hmm. between these different uh, regional broadcasters. And then these things would have quite a wide... Particularly as his reputation snowballed through the years Mm -hmm. things would be shown all across west germany and indeed i'm sure plenty of people in the east saw them as well yeah i read that an estimated 20 million Mm -hmm. families uh eight hours don't make a day which is considered not a great turnout either which is insane which is like could you imagine anything now besides like the big bang theory they don't have that audience it's 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 insane Part of the reason why these, aside from his burgeoning reputation, is again, he was adapting these very famous German literary works. And of course, Berlin Alexanderplatz, the most, undoubtedly the most famous of these, except for maybe like Effie Briest, which was film film. People were very invested in these and they really were curious to see them, you know, brought to life. So, Well, I think this comes up in the, there's a piece by uh, Julian Lorenz, which is in the LA uh, LA Review of Books. Entitled Wunderkind. Entitled Wunderkind, in which she talks about her own first encounter with Fassbender coming through, I believe, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. Mm -hmm. And 
this is really an incredible thing. The fact that this is not like some specialized ivory tower work that is being kept away from everybody, but a small connoisseur audience. Yeah, it's, she she says that um, her family didn't have a television set. This is so moving. She said her family didn't have a movie a television set. And so she would go to school and all her friends would be talking about what happened in the last episode. And that was how she gleaned the sort of narrative of, of the show. And it's it's just an extraordinary thing to think about, particularly from the perspective of 2017, when yeah. broadcasting in the classic sense literally doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And when it is so difficult for anything to penetrate the filter bubble algorithm that is built around each and every one of us, this kind of thing where out of the ether, this very, very strange and singular sort of vision is going to be plopped into living rooms all across, in this case, West Germany. Not Uh, even a whole part of a country. Yeah. But yeah, no, and and I mean, it's funny because there's so much talk about prestige TV now, and it's like, when Mad Men was getting its best ratings, it was still getting 10% of the ratings of something like two and a half men. Yeah. When people on the coast consider it, or people who are cinephiles or whoever prestige television is directed for, I feel like it is cinephiles because it is composed mostly of references to film. It's not part of the conversation. It's not like you, like a teenager isn't going to school and being like, oh, wow, let's talk about what happened on Better Call Saul. Like, mm. that's not fucking happening. And, this, and, then, and, in, and in Germany in the 70s, this was totally a thing. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's neither good nor bad. It simply no. is. But right. nothing like this had, I think, happened before, mm-hmm. nor will it ever no. happen. No. It won't ever happen again. No, we're just so fractured. Everything's so fractured and, as you say, Nick, tailored to individual bubbles and niche. So, And it was sort of the only milieu that um allowed him to have his insane productivity exactly that you know the the output that you know he he absolutely needed to to have was sort of matched by the speed of the industry whereas all the other funding mechanisms that existed at the time were were pretty slow and tedious Mm -hmm. you know if they were government uh grant funded productions it would take years for one project to get off the ground and sometimes he would make you know two or three or even seven films a year right and he's incredibly efficient at directing television despite how beautiful and sumptuous the 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 mise-en-scene were Uh, apparently this was filmed in just 97 days that's extraordinary which is Yeah. yeah it is extraordinary and i mean it's it's interesting to compare an analogous a you know an analogous example more recent one would be Korea in the 90s with you know they had their economic boom thanks to Are the, you talking about K-dramas? I'm not just talking about K-dramas. I am also talking about, you know, the film industry there. Where, I didn't expect to be talking about K-dramas and Fassbender in the same conversation, but it's well, kind of great. This you know somebody like Park Chan-wook who helped define that the new wave of Korean film directors, you know, even that was like that, that output was underwritten by the government again, who sort of wanted to project a complicated new image of Korea as not just sort of like a poor Southeast Asian country. You know, he couldn't get out as much stuff because again, it's like, it's relying on 
film as opposed to television, right? There's a, a new book that uh, just landed on my doorstep, which is actually reviewed in the latest issue of Film Comment, along mm-hmm. with Miss Ma's piece about eight hours don't make a day called Utopian Television, Rossellini, yes. Watkins, and Goddard by a guy called Michael Kramer, which, if nothing else, further gives the lie to this idea that there was at one point this stark dichotomy between the worlds of television and cinema. Mm-hmm. And that there is truly nothing new under the sun in terms of television acting as either a incubator for talent or a new canvas on which filmmakers can throw up their work. Just test things out, you know? Or, I mean, there's a very long list of television masterpieces made by film directors or not even necessarily dedicated film directors. Right. Somebody I mean, like- there's a great article which I had you send me years ago when I was writing about Tom Allen called The Semi-Precious Age of uh, the TV Movie right. from like 1978 when he's giving a whole rundown on like John Badham and Sargent, taking of Pelham 123, and Steven Spielberg, who of course was coming out of television as well. So... It's a very tired discussion. Yeah, and I guess if we're, you know, if we're talking about auteurs and and how they're linked to television, we can also talk about the Hong Kong filmmakers of, the, yeah. of that golden period of the eighties and nineties. You know, Wong Kar Wai got his start in television. John Woo, Choi Hark. I mean, a lot of people mm-hmm. got their start in in television. Mm-hmm. Cut their teeth. I'd like to just talk a little bit though about how Fassbender's TV work is kind of reflective of one of the things that I find just unspeakably moving about him is the very egalitarian attitude that he always had towards not only the material that he was handling, but toward the audience that he was addressing. Mm -hmm. Because I think more than almost any other figure we're speaking of, I mean, I I love Rossellini's didactic television films very, very much. But I think more than any other uh, figure that we've been speaking of, Fassbender was one who just absolutely categorically rejected categories across the board. And this goes for in terms of choosing between I'm going to be a theater director, I'm going to be a television director, I'm going to be a film director, I'm going to do radio dramas. He did all of these things. Also, in terms of completely rejecting the idea that you had to either appeal to an audience emotionally or appeal to them intellectually. Mm-hmm. And I think this comes up in your piece, Aliza. It's, it's worth talking about the fact that these the sort of one-two punch of uh, Merchant of Four Seasons and Eight Hours Don't Make a Day comes very hot on the heels of this sort of road to Damascus moment that he had after a break from years of feverish productivity. I think he had seven features, something like this, out in 1970 when he discovers the melodramas of Douglas Sirk, uh, having up to this point been working more in the stark modernist mold and maybe something of a Godard acolyte out of the gate. Or Godard photocopier, but that's fine. (laughs) Um, And starts to think very differently about 
his work and starts to think, how can I fuse the legacy of theatrical modernism to the classic Hollywood tradition of entertainment, emotional petition, so on and so forth. And this is when we have this just absolute boom of creativity, Mm -hmm. which is Eight Hours Don't Make a Day and Merchant of Four Seasons and this Martha I mean this run that you know comes over the next few years and to me I I I don't think we've ever quite gotten as smart as Fassbender was because we still tend to be very obeisant to these categories Mm -hmm. and he dissolved every one of them and showed how it could be done and did it in a way that had absolute integrity and was not, I think, condescending in the slightest and was not selling out anything in the slightest. No, but at the same time, he was extremely shrewd on the industry, on the business side. Apparently, it was it used to be very difficult to watch his films before this boom that you're talking about. It, it was actually kind of difficult for people within Germany to to watch the films that he made. Mm-hmm. If you were outside of Germany and go, attending an international film festival, you were much likely to encounter one of his films there than actually like in in Germany. And what he did, which I think was very very shrewd and very commendable, was that um, he had a, a line in his contract for merchant that said that he couldn't have any theatrical screenings of of the work before the television air date Mm. and so he said okay fine then i'm gonna just take it to venice Mm -hmm. and uh had it premiere at venice where uh it was touted as one of the greatest works of that festival merchant of four seasons oh merchant yeah 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 and i think that's really what starts the ball rolling for fassbender's international reputation i think that's when can be really gets behind him and that the release of each subsequent film starts to become an event where even someone as terrible as vincent can be had to be like oh my (laughs) god this is excellent um but what's interesting also that's when his 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 country people started to take notice yeah. yeah and i mean i i love this um that he was like a proper sort of public figure. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if public intellectual would quite be the the word for it, but there's a great clip that used to be on YouTube of uh, this German equivalent to uh, Circus of the Stars, essentially, (laughs) called Stars in Der Menage, in which Fassbender appears doing a magic act. This is like on the eve of the airing of Berlin Alexander plots. So maybe he owed somebody a favor or something. But he does a magic act where he levitates Hana Shagula and then passes a hoop over her back and forth while Kraftwerk's radioactivity <laughs> plays. And I'm sorry, I cannot imagine, you know, Hanukkah doing this. I cannot <laughs> imagine, like, most of the purity brigade lowering themselves to do a magic act. Even the Safties. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sorry, guys. I don't know. Maybe. I think the Safties might. We can debate all day as to if the Safties would be willing to <laughs> guys, appear on Circus with the I've stars. thrown the... No, I know they're listening. Guys, I've thrown the gauntlet. Fucking do it. <laughs> I mean, we, we've talked about this all the time, but, like, that's, I think, one of the big differences, 
and and Pasolini, I think, is also a figure who you can look at in the same way, who's like showing up in like Carlo Lizani like spaghetti western. Mm-hmm. Like that cult of purity has just not gotten calcified to the degree that Mm -hmm. uh that it sometimes has been well and also the idea that people wouldn't be interested i I mean you see this everywhere now where it's this idea that there are a certain type of people who only want a certain type of thing that they're they're racist coal miners or racist ex-coal miners living in west virginia and they don't want to see this stuff they don't care about this stuff and it's like says who yeah. So you say you the gatekeeper, you the influencer, you the East Coast liberal bubble person say that this is true. And it's it's not necessarily true. Yeah, and these bubbles are constructed for us in many, many cases without yeah. any permissions being asked. Exactly. Um, but yeah, again, the idea of like flipping on television and running across... Like eight hours don't make a day. It don't happen. Or even, or even, yeah, you know, amazing. with the with the demise of the music video, that there was a time where you could turn on your TV and something like Paranoid Android would be on. You know, you would watch an experimental film, mm-hmm. and you hadn't necessarily planned on doing that, but that's what you, that's what was on. Or you know, anything by Chris Cunningham or oh. anything by Michelle Gondry could just. You could just randomly encounter this thing. On uh, on Saturday night, we were discussing Chris Elliott's Get a Life, which is <laughs> the American Berlin Alexander Platz, <laughs> with a bunch of people who are approximately my generational co-evils, mm-hmm. and just the sheer strangeness of not only the fact that you could stumble across that, but then you had nowhere to go to confirm what you believed was going on no there's nothing that was going to reify or tell you yes you're absolutely right that this is significant or horrible or off-putting or whatever you just (laughs) sort of found yourself having to puzzle through uh on your own yeah I, i do think that it's an incredible thing to to imagine you know flipping on the tv now and 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 encountering something like eight hours to make a day Apparently, because of its popularity in Germany and how well it was received by audiences, it kind of catapulted his um, identity into that of a television star. Mm -hmm. And so he was widely written about in the papers, though not always favorably, right? The the initial critical response was kind of negative, actually. Well, because of his across-the-board nonconformity, he always tended to get it from every end. For the, like, avant-gardist, he wasn't experimental enough. For the queer crowd, like, Fox and his friends is about as, like, much of a bummer depiction of, like, homosexual life in West Germany as you could possibly get. For the communists, he wasn't ardent enough, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Which is another point of comparison to be made with Pasolini. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, to... To borrow from Herzog, the very beautiful eulogy he gave upon hearing of Fassbender's death, we lost our greasy boar. It works in more ways than one. I mean, literally, he was very greasy, but he's <laughs> also like a very hard figure to pin down. Literally slippery. Yeah, literally <laughs> and figuratively slippery. Yes. And I, I, I worry that maybe we're not adequately expressing in addition to how jovial and how enjoyable 
uh, eight hours don't make a day is. But also, it's deeply, deeply strange in mm-hmm. its effects and approach. Yeah. yeah. Certainly, I don't think the producers got what they were signing up for at all. No. They were quite surprised by the product. Yeah. And I mean, people were expecting it to be something that it wasn't. But I mean, even there are so many little moments in the way that the camera moves or the action is blocked that are very avant-garde, but then also beautiful. Like there's a moment when they first, where Jochen first starts encouraging them to fight against the management. Again, this is a machine parts factory. There's nothing classically beautiful in there. And the way that the men stand together and the way that they're framed is like, it it moved me to tears. It was just like where they're like, oh yeah, we don't need our boss. Our boss needs us. Mm. We actually have the power. It was like, this incredible, you know, when they're all showering together there are multiple scenes where they're all showering together after work there's a moment where all the guys are mad at Jochen for kind of like making the management mad at them you know he's sort of like isolated from them visually and in terms of how they're treating him and then other times it's just like these images of male camaraderie that you don't see anywhere it's just and it's again it's like it's it's moving in a way that's not saccharine or in your face yeah. in any way. Do you guys way. remember the insane overhead shot in the factory where they're yeah. passing around the they're petition? They're delivering their demands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or even or even like, you know, when, again, the juxtaposition between Oma's birthday party shot from above and then shot, you know, sort of like sitting height versus Kurt Robb's evil step, or evil, not stepsister, evil, he could be, evil uh, brother-in-law's birthday party where it, it looks the same but then the, the dynamics are completely different like it's these these weird instances of mirroring across this gigantic work and you also have all of these incredibly strange punctuating zooms some mm-hmm. of which almost mm-hmm. work in a sort of punchline fact uh, way when grandma finds gregoire and there's a almost a swish pan and a zoom to the book that says mm-hmm. Lady Shatterly's Lover. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hilarious. Or when uh, Joachim and uh, Marion go to a strip club where there's oh a, God, yeah. a woman on stage in like a serape <laughs> swaying around to the Anya Morricone uh, Fistful of Dollars theme. And at, after Marion Hannah Shagula leaves the club in a huff, you get this crazy zoom right into a poster of Charles Bronson. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It is like it's like again. It's so it's so sad because it's like I want to live in the world where I can just go to that yeah. place. I mean, these yeah, these are not the aesthetics of like Big Bang Theory. No, no, no. And I mean, and I mean, it's funny because it's like I was reminded of. I mean, I not grew that up, I would know what Big Bang no. Theory. I mean, I was. Remi- I'll say I was reminded a lot of Roseanne, but it's absolutely nothing because I grew up watching that show. And that show was like hugely influential on me in ways on levels that I can't even begin to describe. I mean, and politically, I feel like it is very similar, but nothing about it visually. It's a quarter of a tenth of a percent of what this is. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Roseanne because I'm going to take a, a little leap 
and I'm going to say not that not that Midwesterners get Fassbender more than other people, <laughs> but maybe get him in a slightly different way because the Midwest is largely populated by Germans with horrible taste. Yes. So there's a lot of like aesthetic carryover. No, no, I mean who are steadfastly miserable and constantly drunk. And yeah, and just very quiet and stern and crippled by Protestant work ethic. Yes, there are many there are many ways we could take this, but like the episode that begins with Jochen being made cabbage rolls like by three different people i was like i was cracking up not just because you know this i mean it's an it's a ludicrous thing but like i remember coming home and like smelling cabbage and being like because it's it's like you get less than one flavor with cabbage rolls like it is one of the worst meals you could ever be given and then the idea that it's like oh this is his favorite dish well it's it's also just like it's such a corny joke that, it is. like yeah. you really see Fassbender's like dad humor oh in, on full display yes yes because it's like straight up there was like a commercial when I was a kid where it was like a kid who would like plot to eat like hamburger helper twice <laughs> it's like that that yeah. level of humor it is really operating is. and then at the same time like there are these incredible formal feints at mm-hmm. work. For example, in, in Katzelmacher, very early Fassbender film, you have this recurring theme. The entire movie's more or less just hangouts around uh, you know, some public housing with a bunch of wastrels. But you have these occasional very formal scrolling walk and talks. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in Eight Hours Don't Make a Day where you have these actually rather complex sequence shots and it's not there's nothing showy about it whatsoever it's uh just there mm-hmm. um but there's a beautiful one i think through with uh joaquin and uh marion either marion or perhaps his sister the mm-hmm. brunette actress renat roland but yeah you'd like side by side you have this very like basic like rib nudging humor and yeah. some really really quietly elegant uh work going on right if you think about that crazy long take in uh love is colder than death through the grocery store mm-hmm. with der rosen cavalier playing mm-hmm. on the soundtrack that was very very demonstrative and it definitely you know you realize while you're watching it how impressive it is mm-hmm. And how incredible it is that he managed to orchestrate this. Whereas I feel like the what you're talking about with with eight hours, these walking scenes, they're just so tender and immediately immersive and brimming with with so much love. Yeah, because the the formalist is still there. Yeah. He hasn't mm-hmm. gone anywhere. Right. It's just been matched to a new relationship to the material. Yes, I would absolutely. Say. And, and and he does do some showy stuff with the mirrors in this, oh, which absolutely. are very thrilling. Yeah. Well, it's no Chinese roulette, but well, the Chinese roulette is like barely a movie. <laughs> that's like I mean, that's just like a giant formal exercise, and you're just like. You were super coked up when you saw it. <laughs> you re- like it's just like you can see him at the typewriter sweating, being like, "Yes!" And then the little girl tells her mother that she thinks she's a supervisor at a Nazi camp. Yes, yes. Like it's it's awful. It's it's just awful. <laughs> so speaking of cocaine, sure. I also noted that there is apparently a three-hour and twenty-minute version of the station master's wife. Mm which was broadcast in two parts for television, but which I've only seen and which, to the best of my knowledge, is only available in the two-hour theatrical cut distillation. I bring up cocaine because apparently Fassbender's uh, 
idea, his his big concept for the film was to have Kurt Robb, who plays the eponymous station master, coked out of his gills for the entire thing. It was you know it was like his uh, you know Herzog's heart of glass where everybody's hypnotized. Mm-hmm. It's like Eureka, I've got it. You're gonna be coked. <laughs> up to your tits for the entire movie. This is a good method acting exercise. Yes, yes. It's, it was a different time. The 16 millimeter photography is just incredible. Yes, and World and on a Wire. It's so impressive to think that, you know, all of this was, was done on 16 millimeter and the it, restoration really brings it to life. Yeah, the TV work was either shot on video or on 16 millimeter, which was, which was again, yeah. just sort of the procedure at the time. And it's... World on a wire, you look at that, like the colors on that are amazing, and the way that the camera is moving, like you would, it, it's it's a cinematic experience. It's yeah. a fully cinematic experience. I mean, experience. Six, there's nothing like 16 millimeter grain, and you can you can totally see this in the restoration, mm-hmm. which I'm very, very happy about. And it's, you know, it's a very bar- Baroque mise-en-scene, so when you're, you know, watching this scene of grandma in her crazy little cafe where she downs endless glasses of schnapps. Where and there are a bunch of wild y- animals in cages. Yeah, and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's like a, there are birds, exotic yeah. birds in cages yeah. and other, maybe little mammals or, I, yeah. I don't. I guess amazing. that was a thing. Yeah. We can only assume. I hope that was a thing. I want that to be Bring a thing Bring it again. back. Yeah, Cat cafe, passe. Yeah. Exotic animals in cages, cafe. Yes. A total bestiary. <laughs> yes. But unfortunately, we have to close. But before we do, it would be great if we went around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. Speaking of 16 millimeter, I watched Susan Pitt's Asparagus, which is a short film entirely animated from 1979 and it's something that I've always been curious about seeing because I originally read about this in Jay Hoberman and Jonathan Rosenbaum's Midnight Movies and Ben Barinholtz who was the guy who distributed Eraserhead purchased Asparagus to be like the film that shows before the before Eraserhead and it's easily one of the most amazing shorts that I've seen in my entire life. Amos Vogel also wrote something for this magazine about it in uh in his independence column. And basically it's about bodily functions. Uh, It opens, (laughs) the opening image is a woman getting on the toilet and crapping out pieces of asparagus that sort of float up to the, (laughs) float up to the top of the screen and spell out asparagus. But then asparagus also becomes like this phallic object. It also becomes this thing that is just sort of like forming naturally and raining outside and it's it's just this incredible uh piece of work and um i'm not really doing it justice it's it's really beautiful and like it's a profound expression of desire and also just again technically it it uses sort of like standard drawn animation claymation yeah it's and the music is just incredible so i'm if you get the chance it's not available online i don't really know where you could see it outside of like a video library or whatever um but if you get a chance to see it go see it they have another edition of a universal rarities series going at the museum of the modern art and uh i got to see a film that i'd never seen before todd browning's uh outside the law a Mm -hmm. remake 1930 remake of a movie that he made in 1920 this one featuring uh Edward G. Robinson as a half Chinese uh, 
gangster who mm. uh, who menaces uh, downtown Los Angeles. It, he speaks Chinese. He it? does, yeah. He speaks like Chinese in Edward G. Robinson voice. Neha. It's, ah! it's, it's like absolutely. <laughs> does he have a Fu Manchu? He does not. No, oh. actually, his ethnicity is not known, and he's sort of menacing a innocent white girl who is upset, but is sort of submitting to his caresses, and then just long enough to get what she needs. Uh, and then his Chinese mother comes from out behind a partition and she sees them embrace and like her disgust is quadrupled. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, you know, it's, it's the character. It's the character. <laughs> and it, 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 Was so- he going to put her into white slavery? No, One of my favorite no, 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 no. Eddie is a lot of fun oh, in sure. this one. And there are also more than a handful of indelible images. Most of them are unfortunately sort of packed in the first half hour. Or so it sort of peters out, but it is, uh, there's a great uh, sequence where Robinson goes and first encounters the woman who wins his heart in this weird sort of dime museum where she's performing a tableau vivant act uh, as the face of innocence. Um, so yeah, it, it comes out the box very nice and then sort of flitters away. I don't know. Todd Todd Browning, you can't go wrong. Yeah. I watched Young Desire, also part of the Universal show at MoMA. And it's a movie from 1930 starring Mary Nolan. And she plays a circus uh, dancer who somehow decides to escape her fate and run away from the circus suddenly you find her somewhere in california in an orange uh field and she's hungry and thirsty so she's eating oranges straight from from the trees which is when she encounters a young wealthy man who takes her back to his home and his family happens to own a large part of the town so he sets her up makes her very comfortable and for a moment they're able to to carry out this very innocent romance um until the parents intervene then the parents somehow make make her feel so uncomfortable that they drive her out of town and there's nowhere else for her to go back to but the circus with this pimp like owner and all the other dancers who are there and it's a very heartbreaking film that ultimately ends in um, tragedy and uh, I mean the film was shown on a not so great 16 millimeter print but the it was so beautiful that it totally transcended the the format so I'm happy about that 68 minutes really great thank you both for coming this was marvelous thank Thank you. you you've been listening to the film comet podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine film comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.